boys, are you, are you ready? Message and you are not going to like it. Pray for death because this is the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 39, and my name's Robert Grasmi. Sorry, my name is Jakob. My name's Kevin. And um, we're also joined today by a special guest who has been a listener for a very long while now. And then we have been able to get him to come on the show finally to talk about movies with us. So uh, here is a very warm welcome to uh, Randy Burrows. Well, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, guys. I mean, maybe before we actually start, how about you just uh, say a few words about yourself, if you if, if you don't mind. Um, so how you, I don't know, how you found us or how, 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 you, how are you with movies and then what, what, what gets you going? Well, sure. I have a fairly long history with movies, um, but even though I'm a little bit older than you, Jakob, I think I probably came into watching uh, film around the same time. I was around high school age, and I was starting to get into uh, uh, some film like films like Silence of the Lambs and that type of thing. And then from there, I went to university and got into uh, film that much further. I uh, directed a an independent stage production of Reservoir Dogs once upon a time. So the whole oh, independent nice. cinema uh, thing of the nineties that, uh, that spoke uh, quite closely to my heart. So I'm a pretty big Rodriguez fan and Tarantino fan. And I wish um, Jack was here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then since um, I've followed film just sort of as a, as a hobbyist and I stumbled across your podcast earlier this year at a time when I was sort of poking around looking for podcasts and uh, I became hooked and listened, listened to the show fairly regularly. And uh, I guess that brings me to now. Awesome. 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 And I should probably also mention that. Well, by the way, it's, it's, it's just amazing. Also, massive kudos for directing a stage production of Reservoir Dogs. I mean, gold star. This is amazing. Um I should probably also mention that um, Jack was supposed to be here with us as well, but he's messaged me just before the recording that he's stuck in traffic because there is an accident on the motorway. So we, um, chances are he may or may not parachute into the show Hillary style somewhere somewhere throughout the um, recording. But you know we should we should uh, proceed undeterred. So that with all the um, pleasantries well and truly behind us, uh, we can move on to the meat and potatoes of the show. Uh, because tonight we are traveling back in time to 1987, I believe, to talk about John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct. Suppose there is a universal mind controlling everything, a God willing the behavior of every subatomic particle. Now, every particle has an anti-particle its mirror image its negative side maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image 
instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-God, bringing darkness instead of light. Why weren't we told the truth? <laughs> Without the technology to confirm, it would have been another legend. But he was our prisoner, not yours! So Prince of Darkness reteams John Carpenter with some of his frequent co-workers like Victor Wong, Dennis Dunn, and uh, Donald Pleasance, and forges a few new, actually forges a few new relationships like Peter Jason. I think he came back quite a few times after that. And it, well, anyway, the, t- the film tells a story of a group of scientists, or I suppose like grad students, I think, brought together by the professor played by Wong and a Catholic priest played by Pleasance in an abandoned church to apply their scientific knowledge to deal with the essence of Satan, I think, that the church has kept in prison for centuries, which is about to be unleashed on the world and stop. And they have to stop the uh, coming of an even more frightening evil, an interdimensional anti-God. So now apparently Joe, John Carpenter, what's a Joe Carpenter? Carpenter anyway, was insp- he was inspired to make this movie after becoming obsessed with uh, quantum physics. And became enamored with the idea of matter and antimatter and then all sorts of like quantum physical concepts that kind of just accompany this whole thing. So after making Starman and Big Trouble in Little China, he secured a, a multi, multi-picture deal with Alive Pictures where he would be given $3 million a piece. Which ain't much, but and most importantly, um, but he was given sort of creative, con- complete co- creative control o- over his films. And, and so Prince of Darkness was the first picture in the deal. And by the way, this was his return for, to more sort of indie filmmaking, especially after the failure of Big Trouble in Little China soured his relationship with Hollywood studio work. So much like other Carpenter films, this one was shot kind of sort of guerrilla style in 30 days or less in an actual abandoned church in Los Angeles somewhere. And then became the second part of what we now refer to as the Apocalypse Trilogy, together with the, the thing in the, in, the mouth, in the mouth of madness. Sadly, upon its release, Prince of Darkness divided the critics and completely alienated general audiences, which served a massive blow to Carpenter's career as a whole. Although his next film, The Day Live, was a success, the failure of Prince of Darkness might have been what tipped the scales for Carpenter's descent into obscurity. But I hope we'll get to talk about this in, 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 a, in a little while anyway. So the film, much like most of Carpenter's failures, built a cult following and turned many of its critics into champions over time. Um, so let me ask you this. Are you um, Prince of Darkness cultist, but waiting to um, assist with the coming of anti-God? Or do you remain unconvinced that this film deserves to be called a cult uh, classic? So what is your take on Prince of Darkness? How about we start with our esteemed guest, Randy? Do you want to lead the way? Uh Sure. This Prince of Darkness, this was the first time that I had seen this film. I was only fleetingly familiar with it really over the years. I I tend to recall the poster um, and it's sort of skewed image that was on video shelves for a long time, Um, but I'd never seen it. Wasn't all that familiar with it. Um, I've seen it now a couple times over the last couple of weeks. And honestly, Given the period of time in Carpenter's career where this came out, I think it's a very, very personal film for Carpenter. And I think it's very interesting um, just in the in the timeline of, of his filmography. As, as far as Prince of Darkness, I thought, uh, too, that it was a very intense, well-crafted, um, atmospheric piece. Really, from the from the start on, I, I enjoyed its 
one set, minimal effects. Um, so there's some high impact imagery in it. So I had a really good time with uh, his his work within the genre. It's uh, fairly cool to me in a way as he, to a certain extent, gets away from following one character or a lead because you've got this whole team of scientists and the film follows a case, so to speak. And uh, I, I think that's a, a nice narrative structure for for this. Um, yeah, I quite liked it. It is a little bit dated and some things don't necessarily hold up, uh, but it's a, a very ambitious piece and I, I really liked it. And it's sort of rising in the list of Carpenter films, top tier Carpenter. Awesome. Uh, Kevin, do you want to follow up? Yeah. Um, I mean, today was the first day uh, that I watched it. I just, I, I bought it recently on, on 4k and it, it, it was, I, I did, I just knew the premise of it and watching any of the trailers or anything like that. So just kind of, it very much falls in with what you would expect from John Carpenter. You know, you have a very, you know, propulsive synthetic score. You have you no know, great atmosphere. You have ridiculous amounts of, of, you know, effects and body horror and blood and all, all those things you would expect from from a john from a john carpenter film especially a a um a 80s john, john carpenter film so uh, i definitely think this is probably more underrated you no know, looking at you no know, the films of his that get talked about the most you no know, i think this is definitely definitely a uh a, a interesting one out of out of the bunch awesome i mean this may be I think the first film that we've covered, I mean, we've covered, I think, close to 50 films in here already. I think this is is maybe the first one where we're all first-time viewers on this. Because this this has been on, on, on my sort of John Carpenter bucket list. For a while now, and then uh, and I've seen most of his work, and this this has sort of been like the sort of thorn in my side almost because I'm I I missed missed out on seeing this in my sort of VHS rental period of my life where this this should have probably been, um, and I also distinctly remember the sort of the um uh the VHS cover of this which was uh, just I don't know haunting to me and, and and I was always kind of just um intrigued by it but I never worked up the courage to actually rent it and see it. And I really regret not doing so because this would have probably been one of my favorite John Carpenter gr- film growing up because it actually has all all the sort of constituent sort of parts for 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 a young me to appreciate i think you know, there, i think i like some of his work works even more than that but it certainly was a pleasant surprise i really really i mean one one of the things i i really want i'm really looking forward to to talk about in here is the music and the music the tone of the film is just it's, it's just something that I don't I don't think I've seen in Carpenter's work uh, well bef- before at all. Uh, because as Randy, as you've said, like this is oh, first of all, like, it's a it's a departure from a from a from a singular lead, and then, like you're not even following an ensemble, you're following an event almost, and um, it's um it's a very non traditional horror film that sort of borrows quite a lot from surrealist work, and then. It's just a, almost a mood piece, and I'm just sitting there, just uh, floored by how creepy and um, dreadful everything is. Because it's it's not well, it, it has a few jump scares which are quite effective, I, I should say. But it's almost 
like I've, I switched it off and I went to bed and I felt uneasy about my life. <laughs> so I think it's, he succeeded because I think he, 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 the film was based sort of more or less about on Deborah Hill's nightmare that she had like some, some, some years before. So she had this sort of dream of um, a shadowy figure emerging from a, from a church. And then he decided, I want to make a film about that and about that. And I'm going to make, make her fe- fear sort of a real thing. So that's going to, that's going to, what a great boyfriend this guy was. Um, so, so yeah, he, he, these, these are sort of my opening impressions on, on Prince of Darkness. I really dig it, even though they sort of like, he, he, it's almost, I dig it and I appreciate it more than I, more than I dig it. And, um, and I feel like I, I actually felt coming here, I would probably have to be on more of an on a on a defensive because the film's so easy to hate. Because you can you can hang yourself onto um onto onto the acting alone and just go nuts because I can or like the dialogue writing's kind of just weird and, and acting's kind of meh. But if you can get past it, it's just such a blast. So yeah, and <laughs> So one of the things I wanted to kind of touch on and so to kind of open our deliberations uh, was sort of how, I like to ask this question quite quite a lot, how do you think this film kind of fits in Joel Carpenter's filmography just as a whole? Like, is, does it, do you think it sticks out or do you think it kind of fits in quite well? I know it, it's, a, it's, you know, as a, it, it's, a, it's the second part of what, what we now know is that as the apocalypse trilogy, although I, I'm not sure who actually coined the phrase, whether it was Carpenter himself or someone else. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I yeah. haven't heard that. I don't know. Um, yeah, so it's so so let's let's just start with that. So, how do you guys think this film sort of plays into John Carpenter? Ca- John Carpenter, Carp- no, I can't do this. Carpenter's <laughs> filmography as a whole. Well, I mean, I think like watching it, you know, it, it had you know, a lot of you know again a lot of elements of John Carpenter's films. So you had you know those elements of like um, assault or the fog or the thing. Or no, yeah, you no. Know, a lot of the films that really made his career, you know, there's a lot of those elements in that film. So, no, if, if I looking at it, you know, understanding, you know, what, what his career was like, you know, prior to making this movie and then seeing it, you know, if it, it feels like, you know, he's kind of just taking a lot of the things he's done before and just really going for it and just trying something very different. And that's true, Kevin. I I tack on to that, like he's. He's boring from those films that you suggested, like the the fog. I think that's in in here in, in Prince of Darkness and Assault on uh, Precinct Thirteen. I think that's here in a big way too, because he was big on the siege, right? Like the siege type of film, and I think that comes from his always wanting to do a western and uh, those elements uh, of wanting to bring sort of a, a western into horror. I think that's threaded throughout his career as well, particularly his lower budget things. Um, so with, with Halloween and the fog, those were lower budget, but in terms of where this fits in, I think this is a bit of a return to form in in my view. So he had uh, the seventies, which were quite successful and he was working on small, small films. Halloween was enormous, um, an enormous hit, but I, I think it was, a very influential film in Hollywood too, because so much money was made on the cheap. And I think Carpenter and Hill for a little while were perceived as uh, golden 
children in in Hollywood because you had uh, some big budget flops from some of the new Hollywood crew towards the late 70s, early 80s. So you had some big budget risky films uh, like Sorcerer lost a lot and you had, you know, Ishtar came along in the early 80s and lost a lot of money. So Apocalypse I think Carpenter now, I think, was a bit of a, yeah. What, pardon? Apocalypse Now, I think was also a bit of a thorn in the studio sides as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. 79 was pretty like the Apocalypse Now, New York, New York. No, mm-hmm. one were... from the heart. One from the heart, I think, was a big loser, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and Heaven's Gate, so. of course. Yeah, Heaven's, oh, yeah. Gate. Heaven's Gate. Yeah, and I think things like Popeye too. Like, like I think there was quite a bit of money in that. That was a big risk at the time. So, um, Carpenter was doing his thing on a much lower scale in his first several films, um, I guess Assault excluded, but um, Halloween and The Fog and uh, Escape from New York, those were highly profitable. And then Carpenter got into the studio system and the studio system didn't really work out for him. Like I know Starman has its supporters, uh, but the thing wasn't even enjoyed at the time. It would barely made its money. Um, and, and also I, I think it was, was poorly received um, uh, when I it first, think, when it first came out. Um, it may have been, I mean, the thing was also a victim of um, being, re- I think it was released against ET or something. Yeah, I think it like, came out with ET Blade Runner. Blade, I mean, Blade Runner bombed as well, right? Uh, yeah, Blade Runner was also a bomb, if I remember correctly. No. Yeah. Yeah, but but he and and I suppose Big Trouble in Little China, I think, was that the same year as like the Golden Child. So it was kind of just like the non-family ver- film of non-family version of something that you can actually see with your own family if you wanted to go and see something in the, in, the, in at the movies. But yeah, yeah I, 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 yeah, I think the studios had him on a shorter and shorter leash. Uh, the more studio films that he did and Mm -hmm. it was also a weird time too because he was managing the halloween franchise and horror was taking on um you know this vision towards uh sequels and slashers and he had i believe it was around the time that he made prince of darkness he had a halloween 4 script that never became part of the franchise and he and hill sort of sold out on on halloween so he was really busy at this time um, and I think that this deal to, I think it was a three picture deal, uh, Prince of Darkness and They Live. And I don't think a third film was ever made. I don't think uh, it was, no. Yeah. But it, anyway, this, this deal came along and I think it, it gave him creative control again. And I think that is evident on screen pretty much from the first frame on. Like, I think he's, he's in his wheelhouse, totally working, working in areas where he excels with, you know, low budget, moving quickly. And the the whole cast here, I think they're mostly from TV. So I think they're used to moving a little bit faster. And I think that's probably part of it as well. Like this was a, what was it? A four week shoot or something? I think, um, I think it was wrapped in 30 days in total. Yeah. Start to finish. So, yeah, I mean, but yeah, but you're right. I mean, there's, apart from like Donald Pleasance and Victor Wong, I think it's all, it's either TV actors or, the, the quote-unquote B B movie character actors that he he I mean this is this is his mo as well like he's always kind of worked in that way, no, mm-hmm. yeah yeah. I mean uh, I would say that you know from my perspective how it fits in 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 Carpenter's sort of over so to speak I totally agree with the idea that he's because he's 
he's like a, the, the biggest fan of like Sergio Leone or John and John Ford. Like he, he, he has never really kept it a secret that he always wanted to make uh, Westerns, but he wanted to make Westerns in a way that's kind of non-Western because Westerns fell out of um, vogue. Well, I want to say in the sixties, right? Yeah. Um, and well, and well, if, if it wasn't for the spaghetti western sort of making it make making its way to uh, to America, I, I don't think you'd, you'd see many westerns made in the in the seventies either. But um, what what he ended up doing, I think, is he was basically just making films like Assault on Precinct Thirteen, for instance, is essentially Rio Bravo, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then when you think about this, then in, within his own filmography, he was also just adhering to this sort of western tradition of just remaking his own films under different guises. So you can see like um, Escape from New York and Escape of uh, Escape from LA are essentially remakes, but this, they're sort of the Le- Rio Lobo to Rio Bravo sort of transitions. Um, and he likes the sort of siege movies. And then uh, Halloween is a bit of a weird one because it doesn't fit the mold of a Western, but I think it was more of a fashion Japan in a way. Um, and then, uh, and it may have also flown on the sort of, uh, coattails of giallo sort of making its appearance in in america and brand de palma making making make starting his career um so, but I, I kind of feel like the prince of darkness is is kind of um in a way a synthesis of quite a lot of his um okay sort of like an estuary of quite a lot of things that he's been interested in because you could see that he's always he's always had these sort of secret societies sort of in his film so it's it's in the fog it's in vampires it's an um uh it's in they live like the whole concept of they live is basically just secret societies fighting one another and then there's the idea i mean what fascinates me the most about this film and how actually it it fits in into the sort of grand context of of this is that he likes making films i mean he doesn't make films anymore but he likes making films about sort of these apocalyptic events happening while no one is aware of anything. Because you can think about that these people are just um, trying to stop the coming of an antichrist. And then you can see the outside of the church is just, apart from these sort of homeless zombies who just descend on the church, just life goes on. So you can see this in they live, just people just go on with their lives and no one knows that there's aliens sort of in, embedded I, I keep spoiling films for, for people <laughs> I mean, at this point if you haven't seen they live you're, you're you have yourself to blame but I, I, yeah i kind of like this i don't know if um if if this is something that i, I, I yeah i at this point I'm, I'm not sure whether this is what sort of uh sealed the fate of the film as the failure because it's it, it's almost too nuanced and too geared for a fan of of his which i'm not sure he had much of a fan base at the time um, I don't think he had, or um, or if this something this is something that should have endeared general audience uh, audiences of the time as well. I think that Prince of Darkness it it has a completely different feel to it um, compared to the other horror of the time. So I, I think it really had would have had a hard time to find its audience in theaters, and also too as a smaller smaller production the the mass marketing probably isn't there for it in the same way um but I, I i think that just the tone of this is so different from everything else that's going on in the 80s that this might be hard to push on on a on an audience yeah i mean this is one of those movies that you can like easily like i could have easily seen this being just a 
giant uh, video store hit back back then because this because again and amy it, it might not be you know like a friday the 13th or or nightmare on 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 a, on a movie or something like that that was coming out in in that time but it's definitely something that really showed the talent that carpenter that carpenter had no no one given given the, the right opportunity and the right story and stuff no you know i mean it's I mean, for for like watching it, it's 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 exactly what what I would expect from like an '80s horror film. You know, it's kind of over the top. It's kind of gory. You know, it has good it has good effects for 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 its time. You know, it's it, it's it's everything I would I would expect from from one of those kind of movies. So the so I mean, I think you no know, audience is not not really going with it at the time. Isn't too surprising, but. No, audiences don't always get it right as as we do, as we do often see. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, um, one thing I wanted to kind of just quickly mention is, um, this film reminded me quite a lot of Michael Mann's The Keep. In terms of tone, because it's I think it's also like 1982 or maybe 1981. Oh, not 81. Yeah, I still haven't seen that. Um, because it's still, I mean, it, it's almost a similar concept, as in, like, there, it happens in a church, but the not the Nazis awaken a Jewish demon, and they just kind of just hits <laughs> the fun from there, right? But it's sort of like a, um, I think it came out. It must have came out. Hold on, hold on, I need to check. Um, but I think it, it must have come out uh before 1983. Yeah. Um, so I'm just thinking is. Is this why? Because like the keep was also a massive failure. It's just, I think maybe general audiences are not really well and well sort of um, attuned to th- that kind of horror because it's mostly tonal. It's mostly mood because it's not like a slasher. It's not the Friday the Thirteenth. It's all. Oh, I think Nightmare on Elm Street is a good shout because there's creepy imagery in here, so sort of sprinkled throughout that will that will stay with you, and I think it will stay oh, yeah, with me. Late. Like the, the, that that shot of the woman after she she goes to the mirror, they break the mirror. Like that's definitely one of those shots that that's that 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 yes. sticks with you when <laughs> yeah. you first see it. So it's almost like a painting where it's just it's just like that's really fucking good. And she, especially when you con- when you consider what this m- image means, and when you think just wow, she's gone forever into into some form of other dimension. It's it's scary, right? Yeah. yeah. I think on a marketing side, though, that's. That's a tough sell because it's really hard to communicate the villain in Prince of Darkness. And I think to a certain extent, it's hard to communicate the stakes. Yes, the end of the world, but that's sort of vague uh, to take forward in a marketing plan. So I, I think there's something with this that is just, it's, it's, it's easy to miss an audience uh, just because it's, it's just not specific. It's, it's, it's hard to latch on to um specific iconography um it's it's there but it's really hard to sell this movie on any image but also add i think now that just occurs to me this film because you mentioned this uh randy you mentioned this at the beginning this film doesn't have a lead right and also doesn't have a lead actor and then general audiences generally well in general i think they gravitate towards the uh, the face on the poster right so it doesn't have kurt russell um helming it to kind of maybe give it a fighting chance or like jeff bridges or um 
or any anyone from that time like it would have probably benefited from having Harrison Ford but then again you'd have to reorganize the entire sort of story around a central character because you don't give Harrison Ford or Kurt Russell a throwaway role you have to make him some kind of a hero and the film doesn't yeah. have any heroes so it's yeah it's almost like it was doomed to fail in a way yeah to, to an extent i i agree yeah so it's a it, it's a bit it's a bit of an interesting thing but but then i i really wanted to kind of just just get stuck in the sort of tone of this because i think well Part, I think the big part of what makes this film so special is the fact that it's a mood piece and then how it kind of just envelops you from first sort of even the opening frames. I don't know where you, uh, if, if, if you'd like to kind of just comment on this. Yeah, no, like that the opening with the credits and stuff, I was surprised that the credits took as long as they did from first moving, this moving from, from scene to scene. You know, they, they felt like they took maybe what, like five minutes where like the credits would probably just be, you know, two minutes at the most if they just played them straight through but now I just took the time you know building up everything with the music with the imagery just taking this taking this time with everything you know, I thought that was really a really interesting thing to start the movie off with yeah it's it's an intense opening I love the opening the first three or four shots you know you know you're in suspense mode right away because the the music kicks in and you've got a shot of the the moon i think it is and then you've got a two or three shots of the older priest in the bed uh on his deathbed and you know something's up and then you you get the title card so it just rocks from the opening shot and that that score and that mood and that tone is there throughout and uh that's an interesting play too because there's uh from Carpenter's perspective, like you're not setting up character, you're just, you know, deep in this, in the suspense. And uh, I, I think it's interesting too, how the science versus religion, it, it almost has a, an X-Files type of feel where uh, these grad students are, are brought in to sort of explain, uh, you know, demonology in, in scientific terms. And, but that keeps the suspense going, right? So, yeah, I, I think this is, you know, one of Carpenter's best films in, in that regard, in terms of sustained tension. I mean, um, I mean, I might as well just quickly just, um, okay, well, before I respond to what you just um, said at the, at the very end, because I think this is, this is by far the most int- intriguing bit of the entire film, the sort of the science versus religion debate. But I want, just wanted to kind of just quickly show how, it, the film opens and it transitions to what I believe is just a, a regular university campus. And it doesn't feel regular at all. It feels like something's off, something's really odd. And then you see these sort of the ant hill, the, the ants everywhere. There's maggots all of a sudden. There's just this imagery that's supposed to be jarring almost. That's just um, at odds, or the music's at odds with the sort of Okay, the music's very odd in its in in it in its own way, and it's at odds with the fact that you're just what you're just looking at is just regular images, like regular sort of establishing shots of well a school, and then students just I don't know congregating at a lecture, and then you're supposed to be watching some some regular sort of setup of a story, 
it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like something's off already. Something's happening. Something's happened and you don't know what, what because you haven't been filled in yet. Right. Um, and it's intercut yeah. with it's intercut with the uh, uh, the priest running around and with the concerned look on his face. So, you know, that's <laughs> yeah, that's always there, too. In the, yeah, no, he, you know, he the opening 10 minutes with the entire time there at the beginning. Yes. And then what's interesting to me as well is like when you see Donald Pleasance um, just talking to people, the sound's always off. You don't hear what they're talking about. You have no idea what's going on. Right. So it's kind of like you're being purposefully denied the knowledge. And then you, quite quite a few minutes after that, you see there is this sort of idea of like you see this, these students. I think it's Dennis Dunn and then one of the other guys. Um, they're walking down the corridor and then they see a nun walking by and it's kind of like like it's it's almost out of place because that's kind of the sort of you start the sort of science versus religion debate because it's now traditionally sort of seen as um science and religion are supposed to be at odds with one another right there's this sort of okay well there's rationally what we can explain and religion kind of steps in where where we can't explain anything and tries to provide answers based on whatever um and you can find yourself on 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 either side of this debate and then just have a conversation or just have a really bad day because just people tend to get along with when they have these conversations. But what's interesting to me is that this, like, as you said, it's just, well, there's the pe- these people gathered all, all places in a church to apply scientific methods to explain something that's sort of mystical and spiritual in, in, on a very deep level. Uh, and then they apply scientific context, uh, context of what they know and then they also extract scientific knowledge out of this. Like one scene that's kind of just stuck with me was when um, they, they were extracting, I think, um, differential equations out of ancient right. scripture. And I was just thinking, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it just mostly makes no sense in terms of like when you look at the actual equations. And if you, if you, I don't know, I'm I'm really rusty on my uh, on my calculus, but I'm just thinking I don't think these these equations make much sense. But, but yeah, but the whole concept alone is just intri- intriguing to me. And then yeah, I, I was I was thinking to myself, this is this Carp- this this must have been a special film for Carpenter, as as in just the, the amount of detail and sort of love and care put into concepts in, that are sort of so central to it. Yeah, no, I, I remember the uh, the uh, the tweet you put out saying this is this is Carpenter's tenant. <coughs> yeah, and, and it's. <laughs> How jokingly, it, by it, the way, it, but I think we it, get that. It was, it, it's, a, it's a good joke because it, it, it does kind of hold up a bit. Because, you know, Tenet is essentially, it's a, mo- it's a movie that's all, it's basically, it's, it's all feelings and, and mood, pretty much. That's one way you can, can, you can kind of describe this. And then you also have the storyline with, the, with the, uh, the, uh, the dream from the future and stuff. But, you know, this is very much a, a movie that's built on feeling a mood for sure you know it's something i i don't know how to how to put it properly ron did you want to chip in or um yeah the the science piece here fascinates me i i think that it really works here um as opposed to when nolan is doing it in tenet like I, i think the idea is satisfactory that if something, you know, some scientific notion is uh, fascinating to you and you write a story around it. But um, what Carpenter's doing here, they're, they're sort of a, a baseline for, for the film. And when the, you know, the, 
liquid Satan and the suspense and everything else is, is building, um, everything can fall back for some explanation, but the forward momentum of the film doesn't rely on, on the science with Prince of Darkness. Um, and that, that's where I think Tenet goes wrong. You, you really have to buy into the science and Nolan's really trying to show off his science. Um, here it's this lovely texture and it sort of fits. So if you're talking about um, these messages that are coming from the past, well, maybe that's um, transmitted through uh, tachyons and getting hooked up in the electrical network in the brain. So it's, it's a bit of a backdrop here and it's, it's fun and it's semi-interesting, but uh, Carpenter is, is moving along with the suspense. And I, I think the science is, is just a texture. I think it's just sort of background to all this. It's interesting, um, but the, the film and its payoff doesn't, doesn't necessarily rely on it. I mean, I think um, science is, yeah, I think it's well put. I think science is a background in here. Well, I mean, I know I, I kind of half facetiously kind of put out the tweet that you know, Prince of Darkness is um, Christopher Nolan's tenet. No, no, John, uh, John, John Carpenter's tenet. Um, um, it's a, but I kind, of, I kind of mean it in a way, as in when you think about this, like, okay, well, the tenet is sort of composed. Um, uh, we're gonna spoil the film. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, if you haven't seen Tenet, you're one of the lucky few, right? But um, but the whole the whole concept, I think, if I remember correctly, came to well, came to Nolan when he saw this sort of um, Tenet Arepo. Um, uh, I think it's um, um like an ancient Babylonian sort of sculpture, which is which is basically a bunch of um, palindromes. So five words are, are arranged in. Uh, vertically and uh, horizontally, that kind of just, oh, well, ba basically just say, say the same thing as well. So there's Sator, Arepo, um, Tenet, and something else. Right. Um, yeah. So, but but he then took this, and then he's, and I think he basically must have been reading um, a brief history of time, and then there's this concept of um, what defines the progression of time. It, forward is the fact that um universe always kind of tends to go um towards increase in entropy so the more disorder in the world uh, or if, if you have two states of matter where one is more disordered than the other then the one that's more disordered is more likely to be in the future um because a cup we'll say a cup of coffee that's what that's what hawking used in uh, as an example a cup of coffee and a broken cup of coffee will um, will tell you that one of one of them is distinctly in the past because a broken cup of coffee can't just magically come come together again. Um, so I think he used this sort of idea of moving backwards and forwards in time based on um, how how these sort of um, how entropy can be reversed. But it's sort of so clumsily put together and so central to the plot that you just lose track of everything because you have no clue what, what the hell's going on. Sometimes in here, it's. I think the film is basically just hinging on the idea of what antimatter is, or maybe more, not even just is physically, but just the concept of it being. I think this is a smart idea on behalf of Carpenter, who wrote the film under the pseudonym, by the way, which might, might as well get to get to in a second, is Martin Quatermass, which is a, which is a giveaway, right? Um, but the concepts of ma matter and antimatter are never explored in any sort of meaningful detail. I think he doesn't even attempt to 
pretend that he knows what he talk, what he's talking about. I think he has he has enough respect to the audience to know that it's like, oh, if there is a physicist in the room, they're gonna just think I'm a, I'm a, I'm an idiot. He uses these terms sort of sort of in in the right way. So when Wong and um, Pleasants are talking about things like tachyons and uh, particles faster than light, and then if you if you can travel faster than light, then you can technically travel back in time, which are concepts that you know. Are, are sort of in popular science sort of understandable in, in, in a sort of rudimentary sort of way, but he never wants you to uh, feel like you're dumber than he is. And I think that's a massive right. victory on his behalf because he never kind of overshadows this film with with these concepts, right? Right. Yeah, that doesn't get bogged down in the, uh, the uh, exposition of, of everything. Yeah, totally. And there, there's a ton of it, but it's it's never a distraction to the point that you have to know Schrodinger's cat and all about it in great detail in order to follow what's going on with the characters and with the peril that's on screen. Yeah. So, and they actually explained the Schrodinger's cat in the in the beginning of the film, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's 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 sort of an interesting, but but it, the idea alone of sort of imagining an object that's both um, sort of exists in two states simultaneously because you, you can't check. It's just, it's, it's amazing. I think this was something that uh, you can almost feel like um, this is a, a film made not by someone. So to, in comparison to Tenet, is this not made by someone who feels like they're smarter than you? This is a film made by someone who feels that he just stumbled ac- across amazing cool shit <laughs> and you just want to totally share. <laughs> yeah it, it feels like some x-files episodes right where the the writers of that show found these cool situations either in science or in supernatural mystery and just explored it and that's i think what carpenter is is doing here and apparently he was reading a lot of science books at the time it's a it's a passion of some sort of his and this was his chance because because this film was um, his and he had total creative control that he'd just jump right into it. And uh, yeah, that's what we get. And I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's, there's this one thing as well that I'm um, like, well, this is one of those films that I kind of just, when I finished watching this, I was kind of flawed in, in, in a way that I was, okay. It's not like apocalypse now that I'm just, wow, I think I just witnessed something great. This is something that I was just thinking, okay, well, I, the more I think about it, the more I appreciate this. So by, by, by the time we finish talking about this, this will be right up there with, with some, of the, some of my favorite of it, of, of favorites of his. And one of the reasons now, now it just occurs to me is how he can use these simple concepts to kind of get across okay well to kind of let, let you in on 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 the sort of say ideas of say there if there's matter then there's antimatter then there's this sort of symmetrical sort of mirror image of this and he actually specifically uses these terms because it's all like the mir- mirrors are um, are specifically of use in the film because it kind of just lets you know yeah. that behind the mirror there's there's a world just like yours but it's made of something else and it may actually also harbor some kind of ancient evil and just great it's a great concept. It also kind of just gets into your psychology because you you interact with mirrors every day. And then what if the person in, you know, in, in your reflection is not actual your reflection, but it's, it's a portal to another dimension of some description. And that's, that's, I find this, I don't know, fascinating, you know? Yeah, it works. It works. Um, and it's, you know, it's a big part, obviously of the climax as well. Um, but also too, like hang on, 
you know, religious themes of, you know, God and the devil, you know, this uh, flip side to everything, the, the matter, antimatter, it's, uh, it's a nice scientific parallel. It, yeah, works quite well. Yeah, no. Like when I first saw the the mirror stuff, I immediately just thought of the 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 scenes in the, in the uh, Matrix, which I was, I was probably going to make Jack happy to to hear. A shout out to the Matrix in an episode. We miss you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, like no, it's the scene the, the the hand go through the mirror, then you'll see in the other side and all that stuff. You know, it's that's it's, a great sequence. Yeah, no, it's 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 very it's very fascinating stuff. Yeah, to, to see there. It's also accomplished using mercury, which I'm just thinking to myself, if, if they were dipping their hands in mercury, I'm not, I don't think this is the safest thing in the world to do. <laughs> well, a- apparently what they did, they had some cranes on set and the mercury that's in the hydraulic system within the crane, they drained it out of their own equipment. And then they dipped a prosthetic hand into the mercury for the effect and then played it backwards to make it look at, like it was oh, coming right. out. So... You know, the fact that they just had their crew drain the equipment of its mercury, like that, <laughs> that fascinates me. I know. But you know, it's just guerrilla filmmaking. It's just totally. Like, oh, I, need, I, need a, I need a special effect. He's not going to speak to, I mean, he could have speak, spoken to like Rick Baker or people like this because he knows them, right? Like Stan Winston or, or people like that to kind of figure something out. But he's just think, a guy who thinks on the fly. And I'm just thinking there's other effects in there. There are just, so deceptively simple but creepy eerie and insanely effective the water yeah, falling like, upwards amazing oh yeah the, the, the guy the guy falling apart and he's just turning the bugs yeah the yeah. guy who who uh, robert glasmere who i did an impression of in the beginning <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh I mean, just anyway like you have to forgive me i, I, I kind of like doing these things um <laughs> No, but like bugs or maggots, like these are all simple things. You can just think, oh yeah, well, you don't need sophisticated machinery or millions of dollars for special effects. All you no, need I... is to just get some green water, put it in a in a dummy, and in invert the camera upside down, and just everything looks all of a sudden looks just satanic. It looks gross. I love just to throw back to your comment about things dripping upwards. Um, I thought that was really really clever and there's also a shot in there too where uh worms and mud end up on a window and the worms and mud are dripping upwards they're sliding up the window so there's this there's another um yin to yang there's an opposite force right so uh whereas you know if if god is sort of the boss of uh the rules of science and gravity is sort of coming down from heaven well here come the worms and things flow up so i think there's an interesting thematic in there too right just um again with science and also with the the god and the devil thing um and it's just very simply achieved through that recurring theme of things sliding upward creepily or dripping upward i, I think it's really really cleverly done and again like on on a shoestring really yeah because you know three million dollars when you think well, it's, a, it's a lot of money right but it's not really a lot of money when you have to just pay a bunch of people for 30 days right and then i think there's there's more as well and, and especially that it's it was all shot on like again like wide wide angle anam- anamorphic lenses renting these bad boys is not cheap <laughs> right so um, but then that's that's sort of his or, or also a signature of his that you know you look at this film and it's you know it's a B film that you're watching but it looks amazing 
It looks it really good. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's that's always the one the one signature of a uh, of a John, of a John Carpenter film is just it's it's the look of it. Yeah, and then I don't know. He has this sort of eye for staging things that you just see this sort of, and this is what kind of led me to think. And I still haven't got an answer, so may, may as well just ask you guys whether there is a social commentary embedded in the film somewhere because he makes these sort of he stages these shots where you see the Virgin Mary. Um, in front, and then there's sort of the sort of decrepit building sort of further back, and there's Father. Um, kind of, I think he think he's just called the priest. I almost said Father Loomis, <laughs> but you know Donald Pleasant. Um, in there, and then there's these homeless people who support who seem to um, respond to some kind of a you know frequency that we can't hear or and, and nobody else can hear that they just gravitate towards this church and i'm just wondering is there something more to this film that's just well apart from, on top of the sort of science versus religion the sort of god anti-god the sort of antimatter sort of debate or the sort of lovecraftian idea of just bringing something out of um some other dimension into being in here is there is there a commentary on something else I I don't think so. I I think Carpenter's themes are are usually front and center in the setup, and and a lot of times people analyzing his work will project onto it. Honestly, I sort of think that the the image of uh, like the statue Mary in front of the church, I think that just looked cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, and <laughs> I, I think that, that he does a lot of that. Um, Going to Halloween, like there's a lot of talk, I think, about, well, Halloween is, um, you know, it's about bringing horror to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, but I think that's just there. I I don't necessarily think that uh, Carpenter is doing messaging himself. I I think that sometimes his his backdrops and his concepts might be sort of rich material, but I, I don't know that he's always, you know, trying to push further thematics forward. I mean, I definitely agree with you on that one, Randy, that there, it's just, it just seems like this is just, it just this is more of a, of a, of a, of a, uh, just a straight horror film pretty much where it's just kind of just getting to having the setup in the characters, then get to, to the horror aspect of it. Whereas you look at something like they live where that seems like more of his more like, um, um, overtly um, uh, commentary yeah. film, whereas yeah. that's very front and center. You you have a very clear understanding of what he's of what he's going for with that. Whereas this is just more. Here's a lot of really crazy shit, and here and it, look, it just looks cool when we, when we stage it like this. I mean, yeah, I think you guys are right. As, as in, when you think about when when he has something to say about society, for instance, like you think about Escape from New York it's going to be front and center of the film. Like there, he will have characters say shit for you as in like, well, what's the prison inside of the prison or maybe the outside of the prison. Like, you, you know, he makes these commentaries sort of front and center. And it's not like, and I have a thing he, if I remember correctly, he's, um, if you asked him at like any Q and a, he would just tell you he doesn't care. <laughs> so, so it's almost like, oh, I just look, like, I think you're spot on. It's like, uh, what did you think? Does it mean anything? No, nah, I don't know. It just looked cool at the time. I felt was a, the right thing to do. So, and I mean, I think coming from, yeah. like, he came from, from the 70s, where in a lot of those films were, were those kind of commentary films. So, even some of, some of the, uh, the horror films of that time were, you know, they're seen, they were seen as commentaries on things. 
So I feel like that's probably also a lot of the reasoning behind that as well as you know people wanting to put meanings into things that probably aren't aren't there to begin with. Well, see, this is an interesting sort of wrinkle because um, like I've been going very very slowly, mind you, through Wes Craven's filmography because I have massive blind spots in there too, and then I'm just like I'm going through this and I see just sort of um, like repeating trends and threads. Like he he he. he I don't know, it kind of looks like he makes films that kind of just talk about American society of the time in some fashion, sort of like um, The Last House on the Left is kind of, um, you could see this is sort of, um, it comments on the sort of hippie versus conservative sort of parenting. Uh, well, The Hills Have Eyes is the, um, almost like a knee-jerk to the sort of the, um, the Cold War, sort of living under the gun of uh, uh, of you know soviet soviet rocket attack or whatever or even just aspirations of america to be a superpower of that kind because you know just at any cost possible and then and i'm just thinking to myself there's i think you guys are right that you can project quite a lot of shit onto this and then some of it might not be there but then one example i always remember from um i can't remember who mentioned this i think even george romero himself that when they were making night of the living dead and dawn of the dead they weren't really thinking about say uh commenting on consumerism or in the night of the living dead about commenting commenting on um say racism in america or the civil rights movement in the 60s they weren't really thinking of that because they all they wanted to do is make a great film but these are things that are almost um, implicitly just sort of driving you in a way because you just are surrounded by these things. So you're kind of, as an artist, you, you you end up funneling these things anyway into your work, even if you even if you don't like the idea of doing this consciously. So, I think, I think it's it's still correct to say that to impart certain things, especially in the seventies and eighties, that you know, like okay, well, horror was a was a sort of. Um, was this sort of funnel for for commenting on things, even if subconsciously or unconscious, unwittingly on behalf of the filmmaker, right? That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but as you guys said, like I'm just thinking to myself because I've I found just just before we started, um, there's this guy. I mean, I can't I can't find the actual source because I it's only on the Wikipedia page that there's a gay reading into Prince of Darkness. Oh. I know, right? <laughs> just, just hold, just hold, just hold your horses. <laughs> it's, um, so there's this critic. Uh, let me just quickly find his name. Um, <laughs> um, he wrote a book about John Carpenter, so I think he's he's a fan, right? John Kenneth. Um, I think it's Mur. M- hold on, M U I R. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Moyer. Moyer. Um, yeah. So he wrote a book about him, and then he thinks that there's a there. <laughs> And I quote from Wikipedia. So just Prince of Darkness serves as a parable for the AIDS epidemic that was at its peak during the time the film was made. Throughout the film, demonic possession is depicted as something that is transmitted like a communicable disease via fluid passed between <laughs> people. I mean, it's fact, because they just piss in each other's mouths. <laughs> just, well, I mean, yeah, but it's like gleek. I mean, it's gross. I mean, it's a it's an insanely effective visual because I'm just looking at this, just oh, oh my god, no, it's so gross. Because <laughs> especially it's yeah. just you, 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 like you know for a fact that they just had a hose, it's very sort of thin stream of water, and it just it just looks right. gross. Satan's um, gleek. Oh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but just it's it's a, but then and then you compound things like 
Um, Dennis Dunn says he, uh, his mom thought, was it? He, he quoted, I think, oh, my mom thought I was, I, I was suffering from homosexual panic. That was, that was one yes, line, yeah, he, which is like, I don't, <laughs> comes out of nowhere. And I'm just like, why is this here? And, and there's then, another uh, line too about, uh, he had a date and yeah, and the guy, James and Parker yeah, makes like, fun like, of him. What's his name? Right, right. So there's oh. a couple of these comments about maybe <clears throat> Dennis Dunn is gay. Yeah, but I, I don't know where that's going. Just hold on, no, hold on now. Okay. Like this is this is my observation. Like this is this is me now saying, what happens to Dennis Dunn? He <laughs> he ends up hiding in a closet. <laughs> Yes. He does joke about that too. And he's coming out of the closet through the wall, through a hole in the wall that he that he punctured with a flashlight. <laughs> so <laughs> and, and he's and, and he's almost chased by women and he just dis- desperately wants to get these women off off his body. I'm just thinking, is this like I'm, is this conscious? I'm pretty sure it's not, but it's just hilarious. Well, I mean, no, he, he did he did joke about it too because he, he they were like, "Where are you at?" Like you guys aren't gonna believe it. I, I feel like that yeah. was probably yeah, like, like, oh, a conscious thing they did. I'm in the closet. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I'm, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this sort of theme of homosexuality in the film, especially in the context of everything that's happening in there, especially when you have essentially Linda Blair in just commanding things through forces of telekinesis and then Donald Pleasant Pleasant's hiding in the corner and just reciting reciting verses from from the Bible as he just I don't know, tries to survive. It's just it's just bizarre. It just the film goes off the rails in in such a beautiful way. It's like, just amazing. Cuts her cuts her arm off, it grows back, cuts her head off, she puts it back on. What's what a great that, effect yeah, by the way. Those worked really yeah. well. Those those moments worked very well. Oh my goodness! But did you think about the so when I look at the um, I can't remember the actress's name now because there, it, there's like 15 people in there and then um, it's not Susan. Oh, and, yes. And, and, uh, not Lisa. Lisa was the um, was was the theology. She, she was she was the translator. Yeah, which is which is also a creepy sort of thing when she starts translating things and then it's just um the, the screen. The computer screen starts saying things that you just wow, this is like you're you're not going to be saved. This yeah, that's creepy. another nice touch. Yeah, that's yeah. another nice touch. Um, also, too, the scene where uh, Calder comes in and he's trying to get Lisa's attention and something's off with her and she's just rattling at at oh, the keyboard. The I live, and I live, I live, I live, I live, yeah. I live, and she's not blinking, staring straight ahead, and the not, sound not of the keyboard. The computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The but sound he, of the keyboard is a very click, 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 like it's very creepy in its own right. You hear it from afar as well. Like you have no yeah. idea what's happening. And then you just walk into the room and then you see this woman in a sort of entranced state. It's just amazing. And then also the computer screen, I wanted to say this is like a symmetrical scene to the thing as well. Did you guys notice? Because then Kurt Russell in the, in, the, in the thing, he has this sort of conversation with the computer who does... does um, I think some kind of a calculation is they say, oh, if you let if you let this thing go, the whole earth is going to be consumed by this in like a matter of days. And then he says, well, fuck you too. And then he breaks the computer. Right. (laughs) 
so it's it's kind of like the computer is like the sort of the the bringer of, of of horrible news as well to the viewer. Maybe. And is there one in in the mouth of madness? Is there another? Oh, I don't scene? know. I don't know. I haven't seen I... this since I was like seventeen. So oh, <laughs> I should probably I watched... just make an episode out of this. I watched a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I and I sort of forget. Too, in that scene with the with the computer, when they when they get the guy on the ground and they and like the woman's like puts her mouth on him. I noticed like 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 the sound effect that oh, the slurping sound. I made yeah <laughs> yeah. It was equally funny and disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Agreed, like, yeah. Are, are they really going for this? <laughs> yeah, that was a gross sound. Because you like you know Very these, these are not kissing. So there is liquid pouring into someone's mouth, and it's not funny at all. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, that's some nasty saliva. No, it's just I'm I'm just thinking about this, and then you, like, you can't even say well, okay. Well, with many horrors, you can say, well, well, there's a there's the setup, and then it all essentially turns into like a home invasion, or like it will turn into a slasher from that. There's this, this guy ch- chasing people around. This happens half the time with with horror, especially in the eighties. But this doesn't really do that because there's so many things happening at the same time that you almost lose control of it, and I think that's part of. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if what you think about this, but I think it's by design. I think this film is completely like there is nothing accidental in here. Like if you think that there's yeah. chaos, I think this is what he intended. If you yeah, think that I mean, there's, you, got, yeah. you have demons, you have zombies. I, I, I guess you have body horror. Like there's there's so many there's so many aspects to this. Yeah, there's yeah. religious horror. There's um, there's essentially slasher elements as well because for half of the film Susan is walking around knocking people out, right? Yeah, um, stabbing people. Like there's this great scene devil. and it's gonna make an appearance. It's gonna make an appearance. I'm 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 gonna spoil it right there when Lisa comes in and she's like, I want to have a nap, and then she lies down, and the door closes and you see that just out of focus Susan's behind the door. I crapped myself watching because it was essentially like. Um, the scene in Halloween when you see Laurie Strode in the in the foreground and in in complete silence, Michael Myers is sitting up. (laughs) And just as I'm saying this, I have this image in my head and it just sends shivers down my spine. And I've seen this Halloween like I don't know 30 times by times by now. And then I might as well rewatch it like this week anyway, just because. Um, But yeah, it's just he's so effective in making scares so f- they just get in get in, get to you i don't know is that a fair assessment yeah no i, I think mean, so i mean i remember like the very end of the movie there's that quick jump scare when when the guy's laying in the bed and he just turns over and there's the, <laughs> there's the yeah. woman right there like, that was a really effective jump scare it, it is but then i'm thinking to myself it's a bit, do i then i think so. is it a bit cheap though because it's kind of like at the very end, almost. It's almost like I, oh, it's like the end of Sinister. I'm like, really? <laughs> it's a, it's a good jump scare. There's no question. Honestly, that's that's a bit of an issue I have with this film is the relationship between uh, what's his name, Marsh and, and Brian. Uh, oh, Brian Marsh and Catherine. Brian Marsh. Yes. Yeah, so Lisa Blount and uh, mm-hmm. Jameson Parker is that his name? Yeah. Um, I. Their romance um, is one of my issues with this. And I honestly think that there's a few scenes to set up the romance only to give us that jump scare at the end. 
Agreed. I, I, yes. I, I think <laughs> that's why that's there. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, their pillow took such a such a bad. Oh, it's <laughs> it's <laughs> terrible. Well, I so like, like, the dude really he really used the line. I, I'm I'm a certified sexist. I know. Was yes. like, <laughs> like out and proud or something. Like this. <laughs> and, and sexist and proud of it. <laughs> I'm like really. I mean, they have this conversation and just think to, to yourself, like you look at these two people converse, it's just, how about we uh, start this conversation again? And then she says, okay. I mean, in, in, in if this wasn't, if I didn't know this is Prince of Darkness made by John like Carpenter, a, I would just think this they're going to start dying because I'm watching a, a setup to a porno scene. And then like a few scenes later, he's like, do you want to go get some coffee? Oh yeah, sure. And then next scene, they're, they're, he's waking up bed. in bed. They I mean, just but that's sex. actually quite funny. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually quite funny. Just doing it. Where did her original this? boyfriend go? What was the deal with that guy? Yeah, <laughs> like Parker's stalking her. Like he's hanging out a couple of different times, just watching the building she goes into or comes from. It's uh, it's it's some weird stuff. But anyway, I I guess he got what he aimed for. Uh, did you know? Did you know that there's in in their little bed routine? I think um, there's a line from. Um, th- this is oh, how we to heaven to hold is it to oh. have and have not or to have and to have not yes that's yeah. it yeah it was... and so oh do you have such a high opinion of, on, on women uh, or hold on let me just quickly just let me just quickly find it oh yeah so when Brian and Catherine are in bed and he says who, yeah. who was he the, the one that gave you such a high opinion of men so, so um, yeah so I think Humphrey Bogart is told um so when Lauren Bacall is saying, uh, who was the girl, Steve? And Bogey says, oh, who was that girl? And she responds, the, the one who left you with such a high opinion of women. So it's like a gender reversal, it's a little inside joke. And you can, you yeah. can always, almost say it's purposeful because Carpenter loves that, loves the 40s. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's why it's there. It it, it does nothing for that moment. <laughs> It's just like it's, it's just a joke, right? But yeah, it, it's also like a pun to a joke because the actual joke is the fact that they wanted to get a coffee and he cuts right after sex, and then they're still and they still say, "Well, we didn't get much sleep." Like how we know you, you banged, and you know, just. <laughs> but but this is this is just bizarre, uh, but but it works. It it works so lovely. Yeah, <laughs> Lisa Blount's pretty good in this. I sort of liked her, and I. I don't really know her from, I don't remember her in, uh, is it an officer and a gentleman? Mm-hmm. I, I think that was, might've been her breakthrough. I don't, I haven't seen that film in forever, so I don't really remember her in that, but um, she was an Academy Award winner for, she produced uh, her husband's uh, best short film, uh, Ray McKinnon, who did uh, the actor from, uh, he did Rectify. But anyway, she produced his short film, The Accountant, uh, and won the Oscar. Oh. So, yeah, she's sort of sort of interesting. And she passed away in 2010. So that probably was when McKinnon was developing Rectify. Wow. But at 53 she was when she died. She was young. Very young. Oh, my yeah. goodness. But when, I'm just like I'm looking at her by the way. I'm looking at her in the film, and I'm just, she always she reminds me of someone, and I don't I can't put my finger on who this is. Like is this? I don't I don't know. She, she I don't. Know. She reminds me of someone like um, or maybe she reminds. Oh, what, what's it? Uh, Goldie Hawn's mother? No, Melanie Griffith's mother. Oh, who was? Oh, hold on. 
The birds. Who was in the birds? Tippy Hedron. <laughs> Tippy Hedron. That's what you reminds me of. <laughs> uh, but yeah, may- maybe just just okay. a touch. Oh, um, also, Jamison maybe. Parker with his, with his mustache is just epic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I never watched Simon versus Simon, so I I don't know him from that. Not same. Simon and Simon. Yeah. Yeah, but then I kind of this, this this also is when we're talking about like this. I need I need to do this, but then this leads me to talk about the music, especially because in the sex scene you you see I mean that's it's not a sex scene. The the main theme of the of the film plays in the background, right? And it's just like you're watching this sort of supposedly a tender moment between these two lovers who just had a great time together and there's this ominous music in the background <laughs> it's just it just undercuts everything and i'm just thinking it's again on purpose because it's you know like it's it's fully controlled and i'm and i'm wondering why why that is and i yeah i don't know do you guys have some thoughts on the music as well man i mean i thought the music was really good honestly i mean it, it fits very much within you no know, carpenter's very synth heavy style you know, I, I just felt um, great, great atmospheric music. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I think that uh, um, it's it's elemental to uh, the suspense in this film. And I think Carpenter's on a mission in Prince of Darkness to just keep that going. So the fact that it's happening during tender moments and it's uh, <laughs> trying to remember now, like during the uh, the classroom scenes, I think it's uh, in the background on those scenes too, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, it's it's everywhere because this is just the same piece as well. Because these yeah, mu- these pieces are like ten minutes long. <laughs> yeah, this is just sort of a steady, suspenseful ride, and this the score is a big part of that. Um, my son watched this with me, and he thought it was sort of creepy, and he didn't really say of any specific highlight but he just thought that it was just creepy steadily through so i was i was pleased that he he liked it um but but he responded to just the ongoing relentlessness of the suspense and and i think that's that's in large part why prince of darkness works yeah i mean i think um i think your son is you know is has touched this on the, the subject quite well in here as well because i'm just looking at this the, the music's creepy and i'm just listening to this t- today at work i listened to the whole album twice i'm just trying to understand because I, when i was watching the film and that, okay mind you this is my this was my first viewing of the film out of many because this is going to come back to my life um and i'm wondering like why is this film making me so anxious because this film is kind of anxiety inducing it's very disturbing in a way even when nothing's happening you just feel this sort of impending doom um and i'm just listening to the music and i think i got it i'll, I'll do i, I love I, I love i'm sorry you have to forgive me i, I love doing these things <laughs> um, isn't the album significantly longer than the runtime yep <laughs> the album's like two and a half two and a half hours oh, wow. <clears throat> so so here's the um Hopefully you can hear this. Um, can you hear it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. The op- yeah, that's the yeah. opening credit. Um, so, so by the way, just like this, the whole score has this sort of percussive feel. There is always a pulse in there, right? And I'm just like, okay, well, that's fine because he does this all the time. But hold on, there's. 
Yeah, no, because I feel like the score for um, for um, assault, um, assault on Precinct 13 is very propulsive like that, where it's just very driving. Yes. Yeah. Um, same thing I would say for Escape from New York and The Thing as well has has these sort of... But, and The Thing is not his. It's Ennio Morricone, right? But... um. It, yeah, it's 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 it's. I think it's a yeah, it's it's a signature. But there's one thing. Even these things. There's just noise. But not really. It's very good, like um, um, use of um, ambience. Yes, um, yeah. and what? Yeah, I'm looking at these, and then like part of the sort of dread of this comes from the fact that there's this propulsive score, like there's the pulse, but these noises happen sort of offbeat, so it kind of just knocks you out. And then there's there's more pieces, but there's one thing that I wanted to kind of just draw attention to because I, I I don't know, I'm, I think I'm onto something. I want to see if, you, if if you're into this with me. Um, the main theme, which is I want to say very close in spirit to something like Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but like, think about the, the, the theme in the opening credits, the, the, the sort of main tune, the this. It's very subtle. In the beginning, like, there's this sort of it's almost like it's unfinished. Like it's missing a note. There's this na 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 na, and there's like a long pause when 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 the, the sort of the, the final note resolves, and they kind of get to get closer together as the film kind of goes goes um goes along. Uh, I think that's the one. That's where it should hit the fun. Let me just quickly find. Just as well, something else. Maybe it's in the darkness. Oh no, hold on. No, that that, that one. Um, that's where the team assembles. I'm always surprised when all these songs are about eight minutes long. I know, right? Because it's just it's wall-to-wall music. This film, right? Yeah. Um, but what I'm just saying in here, you kind of see that these in the background you have the tune, but in the background you have the sort of synthesized chords that kind of transition much better into one another, so much closer. So you can see they just mm-hmm. like in what's kind of chaos, as in like it, it's sort of not chaos, but it's um, unresolved music as the film goes along. The same theme kind of just becomes more resolved as a um, as a result. Um, where's the, uh, I think that's the one. That's the, I think that's the final film. Um, that's the final sort of scenes of the film. And, and then you just see. 
and just transitions into a beautiful, nice another chord. It's just I don't know. It's just I think I think it's purposeful, but I, I might be reading into this. Then again, it's just it's more traditional. Like in the in the beginning, you kind of see there are these. It's more disjoint, and then there's another sort of piece of music. I think I've already accidentally um, opened it. Where I think that's the one. I think that's the one. Maybe that's the one. I'm trying to find. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the one. Dust on because you can see it's kind of like um, it, it reminded me of the Terminator, as in, like, there's a synthesized theme that's kind of off kilter and then it's almost like part of the part of its um allure because it's I just accidentally just played with an error because it's not quantized in any way. Ways, oh, yeah, there it is. Here, that's one. Like you see that there's, there's a tempo and then there's these things, there's things in the pulse that happen kind of randomly. Like this. Yeah. So you can't, like, you, you can't settle into a groove, you can't settle into a rhythm and it just almost kind of helps you just stay on your toes. Brilliant. <laughs> Oh, like these I also things. think it, it would also help with whenever the uh, the um, 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 imagery is on screen as well. That's probably yeah. would account for a lot of that that randomness within the songs. When you get those little random bits that don't really fit within the whole of the song, yeah. but still fit. Yeah, I mean, just uh, yeah, I'm, I, I know I'm, I'm I'm growing more and more fascinated by this music. It's just it's something else. Well, yeah, it's a great score. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's. John Carpenter going through his his music. It's it's a, definitely a fascinating trip. I know. I know. Do you guys know? Because he tours a lot, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, he, he, he releases albums pretty often. Yeah, well, it would be interesting to see him live. As in, if he because uh, does he perform his music from his films? Yeah, I mean, I think I, that I, I don't know. He, I think that's what a lot of his stuff is, and then he does. I, I think he also does. Um, 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 original music as well. I think he does stuff with like his son and stuff too. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. Um, no, because I'm just wondering because um, I kind of like his music because it's so minimal. It's so, but you, 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 but it's minimal but effective. Like if you think about like the Halloween theme, right? So simple, yeah. Yeah. So simple, but it's so clever as well because like again, like it's one like in here it's it's a bit more nuanced. I think it's a bit more sort of difficult to fish out why it's doing what it's doing. Like in Halloween, it's just that it's five four um uh measure, right? So so it's kind of just off kilter. So like it's it's almost just disturbing by virtue of just you having to count to to like tap to five instead of just naturally to four. So it's in here, it's a bit weirder because it's just there's there are these sort of moments in music that are just come out of nowhere almost, and then I think some of them are also sort of written in to serve as jump scares as well. 
It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so I just found this on Wikipedia. Okay. Um, Carpenter's third solo album, Lost Themes 3, Alive After Death, was launched on February 2nd, 2021. So this year, uh, a new single was released October 27th, 2020. Uh, so he's still pretty active with it. Wow. Doesn't yeah, I think that's what he mostly just does now because I'm pretty sure he did the yeah. music for the <clears throat> new Halloween. Was it, did uh, he actually do the music to New Halloween? Ooh. Let's find I, out. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that his son did the music, I think, for his two Masters of Horrors episodes. Mm-hmm. He, he definitely did it for Cigarette Burns. Oh, for um, the Body Bank segment. Is that the one? Um, no, no, for just, oh, yeah, Cigarette, cigarette oh, right, Burns. Okay, okay. Oh, okay, I, okay. I think Pro-Life as well. Um, I don't know if he did body bags. Uh, no, Cody would probably be too young. Um, yeah, so Halloween 2018. <laughs> music by John Carpenter, Cody Carpenter, and Daniel Davies. Look at yeah, that. No, he, did, he, did, he did Halloween Kills. <laughs> Look at that. John or Cody? Both. John. Cool. Oh, oh did Halloween Kills as well? Halloween. Yeah. yeah oh, he, has, he, he did Halloween Kills and he's doing Halloween Ends. Wow, we I mean, no, I mean, I like his music. It's very, I don't know. I think he's almost out of in the 80s, he was out of time because his music would have fit much better now. Yeah, it's maybe like, <laughs> it's almost like the sort of minimum, like it's almost like he, he makes trap music. Like, he makes, like uh, yeah, he's like sort of the modern lo fi hip hop, he would be just right there with it. I mean, I mean, yeah, listen to like the um, Assault on Precinct 13 score. Or like just like the main theme for that, you know, he has a very simple the drum machine to it, and then you have the the synth part with it as well. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it's just simple. Yeah. So yeah, he's, um, which actually leads me to believe that like even Prince of Darkness as a film, it's out of time. I think it would have I don't know if it would have fit much better in a different decade. Almost, I think I don't know. I, I would have loved to imagine that it would have it it, it would have endeared the crowd. Yeah, no, they, yeah, that's definitely now, right. Definitely something I would, I would, I wouldn't mind seeing with like when, when things are better with like a crowd of people in a theater. I feel like that's definitely like, nowadays. That's a that's a movie that people would definitely be be more um, um, attuned to, especially especially with it being being a a eighties John Carpenter film. Yeah, especially if you if you actually didn't. Uh, oh, oh, I know. I want Jordan Peele to uh, take take the script for Prince of Darkness and remake it. With <laughs> just put social commentary in there because there's there's homeless people in there already. Just give them something. <laughs> but, no, just because this film actually. No, I'm, I don't. I know it probably doesn't have a social commentary, and even though the guy, Muir, Muir, um, yeah, he he thinks there's a, there's a gay reading into it, which is fine, whatever. But but it, it feels like this film wants to have. Like it, it has a slot for social commentary that just John Carpenter didn't film. I mean, because what his next film was was uh, uh, they live, uh, they, yeah. they, they, they live was after. So yeah, it, I mean, maybe you know, he's trying kind of building up to it, but I just feel like this just you know, the social commentary and it just wasn't was just wasn't really there. No, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I just wondering <laughs> what would it would it be like if he picked up instead of Candyman if he picked up Prince of Darkness and and, and produced it with. <laughs> Someone like Nia Costa <laughs> directing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm slowly running out of gas on this. 
mean, it's a great it's a great film but definitely i don't know if, if we can squeeze a, a, a three-hour episode out of it no <laughs> i mean with, without jack it's just it's difficult to squeeze out a three-hour episode <laughs> it's just been like peace and love I mean, oh yeah, one one more thing I wanted to kind of touch on. Did did you actually catch the reference to uh, the uh, in, the Martin Quatermass, which is his alias for as a screenwriter, um, um, as a reference to Quatermass in the Pit? It's yeah, I'm not familiar with the source material. Is that Lovecraft? Um, I think it's Lovecraftian, <laughs> in okay. a way, because it's I think it's a BBC. Uh, it's either a TV show or a serial or of some description, but basically the concept I think Quatermass and, and the Pit is basically a similar concept as, like, yeah, just people um, like sci- scientists bringing some kind of an ancient old god into la in, into into our dimension, which basically okay. just yeah, the Prince of Darkness basically is a, is like a remake of in in a, in a strange way, but it's but it's almost in like he I don't know. I can I, I can know he has these references. I know he has these connections, but it almost functions almost. It's it's fine on its own. <laughs> yeah, I half wonder if he chose to um, have an have an alias, a pen name, as the scriptwriter on this to uh, get two separate analyses from the critical community after one on his writing and one on his direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just. He did the same on uh, They Live. He also wrote... Yes. He... Armitage, oh, isn't Frank, it? Frank Armitage, yes. <laughs> so yeah. He, he, yeah, so he's credited as Frank Armitage. Um, is this to get around like the Writer's Guild rules as well? Ooh, I don't know. Because um, he would have been like producing, directing, editing. He's doing music. He would be doing everything, right? <laughs> don't think he was editor on anything, he was, was he? Okay, I don't know. Oh, I, yeah. I I don't think. Sure. I may be wrong. I think maybe his his Steve, earlier films, but I don't Steve think Merkovich anything edited. Uh, maybe not anything after. Probably the fog, maybe. Yeah, but then it's it's one of those that you know, like if you ask him, it's like, why did you why did you do this under pseudonym? Pseudonym, and he just he will just tell you, oh, because I thought it was a great idea. <laughs> so maybe he, I wonder too. Out of I wonder if he had. Uh, ego or self-esteem issues too because he always it, it appeared to me that he had uh, a very tough relationship with his feedback I, I was reading somewhere that it really bothered him that the thing which was based on a movie that he loved mm-hmm. uh, his the thing was poorly received and that took a lot out of him um, and I think he was fired from Firestarter did I read that somewhere it seems to me uh, that but- Yes, I think so. Uh, who, who ended up doing Firestarters? Borman or something? No, Mark Lester. And um, so uh, I, I, yeah. I think there's something with that that he he had a bit of an ego for for a guy who doesn't seem like he has much of an ego. But one of his stipulations, I think, with Halloween, in order for him to come on with the producer who had the idea of the babysitter killers, I think is how that started. Um, he, one of his stipulations was to have his name above the title, which mm-hmm. he's had, I think for almost every film. And so he, there's, there's some ego in there somewhere, but he just seems to be such a down to earth guy in any of his uh, interviews. But, and when you read that certain things crushed him, like the fact that he, you know, struggled with um, the studios uh, in 
not so much Sturman, I guess, but definitely with uh, big trouble. Big trouble. Struggled. Yeah. So I, I think mm. a lot of this took um, took a toll on him, and I, I sort of wondered now that he had creative control. I wonder if he would get independent criticism on his direction and independent uh, criticism on script writing in They Live and in Prince of Darkness. It's I mean, maybe yeah, maybe onto something in here. But then, uh, well, actually, I'm 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 happy that we're actually touching onto this before we before we wrap up because I think this is an important issue. I don't think he had a successful film up after Halloween. Full stop. The I mean, I think uh, probably outside of go ahead, Kevin. Producing, oh, sorry. I was like, I think maybe outside of producing the Halloween movies. No, no, directorially, I suppose. Like, Starman would probably be the, on the closest he got to universal acclaim because he just, I think he got Jeff Bridges to be nominated for the Oscar. Or maybe he did. Did he get the Oscar for it? I think he didn't get the Oscar. He didn't win the Oscar, but he was nominated. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I looked at this actually recently. And so Assault on Precinct 13, that was a pretty big hit in Europe, although no one knew about it. Um, in North America. Then Halloween, of course, was a phenomenon. Uh, he went off to do Fog and had a very small budget, one, maybe mm-hmm. one and a half million, and that pulled in 13 million. And then he went uh, Escape in New York, Escape from New York. He had a and, few TV films in between, like Elvis, I think. Yes. And, uh, and someone's someone watching, watching me. me. And yeah. yeah, and I think those were um, just paid gigs. I yeah. think he wrote he wrote the script. I don't know if he did for Elvis, but he did for someone's watching us. But I think those were paid, paid gigs, and you know, young guy learning the system. Yeah. Um, but for for the fog, that was a, a huge hit in terms of return on investment, as was Escape from New York. But when he went to the studios, uh, I think the thing made about as much money as it cost. So when you throw in marketing, maybe it lost money. It's a bomb. Yeah. Um, like it's, and, isn't the rule of thumb like. Um, was it like double your budget to, to, to break even something yeah. like that? It's about triple, because, I think, nowadays, but nowadays, hard yeah, to say what it was. Because, well, no, the marketing cost is like double what the what the budget budgeting cost is, so I think it would probably add for that. Oh, so, so, so if marketing is double what the budget costs and kind of makes it triple to make the money, to make yeah. to break even, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So whenever... Um, uh, yeah, the thing and Christine. I think they all did okay. Um, like they made their budget back, so ultimately they 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 weren't as big a hit maybe as what the studios were expecting. Because I think he was a bit of a golden child uh, because of the return on investment from Halloween and The Fog and Escape from New York. You know, and kid, Halloween did did start its own franchise. So oh, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, I think he was engaged in, I think, did, yeah, was he still he produced, involved in 4? He wrote a script for 4, but then the producers wanted to go in another direction, mm-hmm. and Carpenter and Hill, I'm pretty sure they had a ghost story written, because they wanted to continue with the idea of this being um, a series of different types of scares, an anthology of sorts. So I think the fourth one was slated to be a uh, ghost story. Uh, the, the third one, of course, didn't have Michael Myers. Third one made a little bit of money, but at the end of the day, there was a lot of uh, backlash towards the third season of The Witch uh, because there was no Michael Myers. Yep. And meanwhile, you have 
the Freddy series and the Jason series, they're starting to take off and they cost nothing and have huge return on investment. Um, the, the producers of Halloween, they uh, forget the guy's name. Uh, I won't say it, but I forget the gentleman's name, but he, he oh, bought it on, on, on the Halloween series. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Ahmed Akud, is it? Yeah, hold on. I forget. <laughs> hold on. Okay, let's get this yeah. straight. <laughs> yeah, but my understanding is is that he bought out Hill and um, Carpenter from from their uh, their share in it, and he took it back to the notion of being a slasher again and bringing Michael Myers back. Yeah. Oh, what's his name? And, and I, <laughs> I guess that explain why Halloween Four is called the the Return of Michael Myers. Yeah, well, absolutely. Because yeah, the third one didn't have Michael Myers, which is bizarre. I mean, anyway. it, the third one, it, it's it's a weird movie, but it's not bad though. Like it's it's a, it's its own weird thing, and I think that's I think that that's why it's kind of kind of like kind of a little good. Yeah, <laughs> but then I'm just thinking in terms of what Jack, John Car- Carpenter and. and did he care about what critics said said at the time? I'm not sure, but I think he cared. He cared. I'm not even sure if he cared about making money because he was just like even if when he was losing money, he was he kept making movies. What I think he cared about was um, his films not being liked, just in general, just the whole concept of just people not responding to them. Yeah, um, and I feel this is the one that broke him. I know that there's they live made money and then but I think that's the one because it, when you think about this there is so many personal things kind of coming into the script and then he, after after struggling with the studios on uh, Big Trouble in Little China and Starman and trying to kind of just having his vision diluted by having to compromise with people he finally gets another opportunity to make something that's he he is the captain uh, with full creative control so he puts himself out out there he puts himself on the plate and say and says to the to the audience's far and wide say this is me take it and they've fucked off <laughs> and it's just I, like, I know he checked out at like ghosts of mars but i think at, at that point he was already on cruise control by but it just pains me to see this that you know just he he makes these sort of films that people just didn't get and then it's almost doubly frustrating when you realize 10, 15 years down the line, it's just, oh yeah, people just weren't ready yet. And it's just, but then 10, 15 years has, have passed and now he's an old man and it's just, oh, I could have had a different career if I had the op- opportunity afforded to me on the basis of these, these films making money back. I, I would have made, I don't know, Village of the Damned, I don't know, better. <laughs> <laughs> I think that stuff did take a a lot out of him. I I think that, um, you know, I think both uh, critically and box office and audiences when, when his work wasn't well received, it took a lot out of him too. Uh, I was, what did I watch? I I listened to a commentary with him and uh, he said that filmmaking is completely draining uh, because from his perspective, he usually started by doing the script, shooting it, was engaged with the edit, even though he didn't edit himself, um, but he was also doing the score. And he was so in his work, he was tied to that film for 
such a long period of time and then for it to come out and not be well received um, took a lot out of them. Yeah. I mean, there's an, there's an interesting conversation, I think. I mean, that's not Carpenter, but I think it just applies to actors who basically just are involved in so many aspects of the filmmaking process. Um, there's a conversation where you have um, around the table, you have Ridley Scott, Tarantino, you have um, Danny Boyle, maybe, and uh, Alejandro Iñárritu, and then a few other people, um, because that was just around the Oscar time, and, and then every one of these guys had a had a film in the running, and they were just asking, they were just talking to Ridley Scott, just how can you do two films in a year? They don't don't understand because when Iñárritu was making The Revenant, it took him like four years to actually get it together because he's writing the script, he's actually shooting on location with natural light and everything so it takes him forever and they have to wait for the snow to melt to get certain scenes to done it takes forever for them for these people to make movies and he just shows up on set and just says action there you go great put the camera there put that one there full coverage let's do it in one take great great job everyone see you tomorrow right (laughs) and then he's one of those guys that he's just taking full ownership of over these things and then you just he essentially just makes a baby shows it to the word and and then and and the entire world says your baby is fucking ugly i don't like your baby (laughs) i don't yeah it's not bad (laughs) yeah so i i I could see especially when you also have like people in your films i think who did they have ice cube in ghosts of mars who was openly criticizing the film during uh Like promo, like when they were supposed to market the film, and they're saying, "Ah, oh, John Carpenter let us down in here because the special effects are shit." I mean, just he like Ice Cube for or for crying out loud, go and watch some seventies films or go some watch some westerns. You'll know what he's what he's trying to do in here. <laughs> it's just yeah. So I have a thing that he's just massively misunderstood, and he was ironically enough born like thirty years too early, but equally without his films failing and then establishing these sort of cult followings i think they wouldn't have inspired so many great filmmakers who are working today because there's you know like people like ari aster or like um uh oh what's it what's what's the guy who made saw films oh what's his name why am i going uh. James Wan, yes. All these people, they just grew up watching shit like The Thing and Prince of Darkness. Like, you ask them, what's your your inspiration? They'll probably just list at least three or four of his his films among their favorite horror films, right? And it just pains you, I don't know, when just people don't respond. Yeah, and some of those guys from the 90s, like Tarantino and Rodriguez, I know are big time inspired by Carpenter. Like yeah, to me, I mean, Rodriguez is a bit of a second coming of Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean Carpenter. I mean, Rodriguez does you no know, he shoots it, he does the music, produces it, writes it, edits He's, it. Yeah, he is yeah, yeah, you're totally on on, on the ball. And then, I mean yeah. and then Hateful Eight was you no know, very heavily you no, know, there's a lot of scenes in there very heavily you no know, taken not even inspired, just t- straight taken from the thing. And well, that's cool. like, the score is taken from the thing. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that was—I mean, I know it's a bit of an accident, happy accident. This is why. This is why being a filmmaker, I think, it's supervising a sequence of accidents. But apparently, he spoke to Ennio Morricone. He says, oh, "I want you to score my film," and Ennio Morricone replied that he just doesn't have time, so he just gave him part of the score for the thing, and he reworked some bits because John John Carpenter didn't like it because there was too many notes in there. 
which apparently is a re- is a real thing that he just didn't like the score for the thing because it was just really? too too many notes in it. So anymore, <laughs> kind of rewrote it to kind of just imitate what Carpenter does. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's like the beginning with the the doon doon. It's supposed to be like kind of like a fuck you to, to John Carpenter from from yes. from, from, from <laughs> Yes, it's exactly. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because he, oh. he was pissed off because it, he's Ennio Morricone. He's the guy who made Sergio Leone's films sound great. And, he, and you just have this upstart, like the 32-year-old... No, not even 30. He was in his 20s, right, when he was making the thing. And just saying, yeah, I want you to score my film and I want you to do it that way. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just... I want you to, I, I want an Ennio Morricone score, but I want an Ennio Morricone score that I like. <laughs> just ridiculous uh yeah so so yeah i i can i can totally see how robert rodriguez i can can think about like from dusk to dawn for instance like that's that's a john that's a siege film again right yeah yeah. prince of darkness again or or salt on precinct 13 all rolled into one with vampires it's very similar to vampires right yes i mean vampires well vampires itself like their cousins those movies I mean, when well, those come out with like the same. I think they came. They may era, have come out. Time frame. Oh, is it the vampires same? Vampires is a uh, vampires. I think is a couple years after. Vampires is nineteen ninety eight. So yeah, that'll they, be two years after. Dawn was yeah. ninety five or ninety six. Ninety six, yeah. Yeah, so it's just I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think he's. Um, I don't know. We don't deserve John Carpenter as a species. <laughs> <laughs> put it that way so i don't know if do you guys have anything more that you want to touch on or should we just uh, or are we ready to wrap up um i i wanted to mention one thing to see if you guys had heard this rumor i'd heard that um john carpenter as and this was around the time of prince of darkness right uh he was offered top gun and fatal attraction and he turned both of those down so even though he was having trouble with the studio system i think they they still were looking to to him as a a guy they could hire. So have had you guys heard anything no, on that? I no. forget where I read that recently, but and he didn't. Uh, yeah, he didn't want to do he... Top Gun, I guess, because he didn't want to get into the politics of the end. Well, uh, those are those are Russians flying around. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, I, mean, I think they oh in Top Gun, I think there are Soviets in there, like the the yeah. MiG twenty nines in there, like it's clearly Soviets. Um, yeah, but. Uh, the only remember, the thing I remember he was attached to that he turned down was Exorcist 3. Oh, I, what a bullet I, he dodged. No? Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was apparently in talks with Bill Blatty and then he said, no, I don't want... No, because he wanted to do it his way. He, he didn't like the ending. So then he Bill Blatty told him where to go and he did it himself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's it's, awesome it's ridiculous I mean, he's he's had these problems because he he has this sort of i think you touched randy you mentioned this like he he because he has this ego as well which is fine like i love i, I love when mm-hmm. filmmakers or artists in general they have to have an ego otherwise what, what are you watching right um but he would have like he would take like stephen king's christine which at the time like 1980 late 70s early 80s stephen king was like the pope untouchable mm-hmm right yep and then in short succession he had like stanley kubrick doing his version of the shining and butchering his novel right because if you read the novel 
Very None different. Very it's different. Very different. It's very different. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't imagine Stanley Kubrick presiding over a scene where he has animatronic hedge dinosaurs coming to life. <laughs> so, it was so funny is that he, he went back and did the version of the book, and it's a worse version of the movie. Uh, well, we did, no, Stanley Kubrick? No. No, uh, Stephen King. Oh, it, well, yeah, he the, did, they did um, the miniseries, the right? Miniseries. It's, and it's horrible. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I then, saw some of that. <laughs> let's say you see that Christine, for instance, like the book, it's a, the book's all right, but like the crucial, um, and then when Carpenter, okay, well, I don't know if have you read or well, you've seen Christine, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, spoiler for those who don't know, it's about a, a possessed car. But in Stephen King's version of it, the car's possessed by a spirit of its previous owner. So, so it's this this guy who's just this malevolent spirit. He's just a quote-unquote baddie right he's a bad guy he's just i don't know he's he's some kind of a psychopath who's just possessed the car and then the brilliance of christine to me when which is why it's one of my favorite films of all time is that john carpenter took it out and just said no it's just a possessed car it's michael myers on wheels you don't know what it is it's the shape and that's what makes it right. so damn scary and so effective because it's just i don't know why why this car is doing it what it's doing why it's self self-regenerating who gives a shit but no, the point is that it's just looking at you and it's going to run you off. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. I, I don't know. We don't deserve John Carpenter. <laughs> definitely, definitely a legend. Yeah. So how about with that? Final thoughts on Prince of Darkness? Let's just quickly wrap this up then. I mean, it's a it's a great underrated film. No, definitely deserving of its of its emerging cult status, unless it's unless you know, it, it was already there. You know, you know, if you if you decide to watch it, it's going blind. Just know the story, but that's about it. Because it, it really is. It, it's it's a treat. Awesome, Randy. Do you wanna share? Sure. Share yeah, mind? I I would uh, echo what Kevin said. That you know, it's it's a strong film, and it's it's bold enough to say it doesn't really need characters to you know take the audience on a journey. It just starts with suspense and setup it's got a fantastic backdrop of science without you know lecturing me on quantum physics or anything of the like and it's it's there to fall back on and to draw maybe some thematic parallels to uh religion um but this this is just a moody atmospheric uh gem it uses its uh its imagery really well there's uh some you know some some great moments and some clever practical effects it's it's just a, f- a fun piece and uh, i think it uh, speaks to carpenter working in an environment when he's the best when he has to be creative when he has uh constraints on the production and i i, I think we get a, a success a fun a fun project out of on this one awesome i mean i can't i can't agree more with we both just said it's i don't know it's john carpenter's tenet that's what it is it's it's moody it's gross it's disturbing it's anxiety inducing and it's just beautifully put together it's beautiful to look at the music's amazing everything is just maybe without with the exception of some of the acting chops it's but then if, i can even live with shoddy acting if, if i can get distracted with other things and there's plenty to be distracted by it's just it, it's it's a film that makes you think 
stays with you and in the moment it's just so engrossing that's just um almost unheard of it's in instantly one of my favorite favorites of his it's one of those films that i think um i will chew and mull over for for many many weeks to come and i think this is one of those that will just enter my rotation so whenever i feel like i need to be grossed out by a by a woman uh, you know i don't know kissing a man and then clearly putting something in his mouth that's that's where i'm gonna go to uh so so with that how about we go through our top threes randy do you want to go first sure sure okay um if it's okay i want to throw out an honorable mention for my top three because um to a certain extent i grew up with the actor tom bray he is the nerdy guy who is the first guy to die he was in the uh short-lived tv show riptide uh, a bunch of detectives that worked from houseboats in the 80s <laughs> and <laughs> i thought he was terrific in that show and i really enjoyed seeing him in this it's one of his few film credits and uh, i think he's pretty good here so i'm just going to throw that out as just sort of an honorable mention just to get the 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 name out there um but i guess in no particular order otherwise um the video broadcast we didn't talk about it too much but i love that video footage of the front of the church with a spirit uh, appearing um every time one of the characters falls asleep their dream is this clunky looking vhs footage and that reveals a little bit more and a little bit more i just think that's a fantastic um practical effect and it's sort of woven in there uh nicely it it's another element of dread that just sort of gets dropped in every once in a while and it's i would think sort of a unique uh gimmick for the time too uh so that is one of them um i mentioned this earlier but the practical effect of things going up i i really enjoyed that the worms that were sliding up the window the dripping up i think that's a very cool practical effect um and i think that worked very very well it also works thematically well um because things are going up from hell so to speak i liked that um and I am going to say as well just the opening 11 minutes or so I just I just love in that opening uh 10 minutes or so between the score and moving back and forth from the classroom to uh the the church and with the homeless people I I think that you've got a lot of dread generated and it's just a fantastic opening I just before we transition to uh, to Kevin's stuff three, I just wanted to quickly touch on this sort of the flo- water flowing upwards. There's this image of this this whole um, the fountain flowing out of woman's mouth and eyes. Dre- just I don't know dreadful sort of imagery that's now just seared into my brain. It's just woof. That's that's <laughs> the liquid Satan going yes. into her isn't it yeah yeah but yeah. it's just it's, it's so bizarre looking and it just comes totally. out of nowhere <laughs> it's just and yeah. all the, yeah. by the way when we when you mentioned this sort of shared dream we haven't spoken about it almost at all but it's kind of like um almost like a little tip of the hat to the, the nightmare of elm street series in a way the sort of the idea of a shared dream and something coming in that dream like some kind of a message and then also at the end coming uh, this becoming the woman who got trapped in the mirror as well it's just brilliant mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin, do you want to do a top threes? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you know, talking about the effects is a good uh, transition to mind because that's one of the ones I was going to say was the the effects in the movie were just very very effective. You know, again, the 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 scene with with the with the water flowing well, it's flowing in, but obviously it's flowing out of the woman. And so that's really crazy sequence. And you know, the stuff with with the mirrors, and then um, I just forgot what it was. But again, it's just it's just so many great great you know, practical effects in this in this movie that just really speaks to the to the power of of John Carpenter in that time, and then also um, the uh, the atmosphere that you know just just the persistent throughout the entire thing, which is almost very um, 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 oppressive, almost where you know you just feel the dread just you no know, you no know, inching closer and closer every time until you get to that that last that final scene where he's just you know, slowly pushing his hand towards the mirror and just cuts to black like that. And this then, is a Nolan uh, moment, right? This is this is Inception. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he 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 clearly stole stole it from somewhere. Yeah, and then uh, say the the last bit though is definitely the the what we already talked uh, touched on a bit or a lot really is the the music. It's just. It's just Car- John Carpenter at, at, at the top of his game. I would definitely say this is probably some of the best music he's he's put in put into his films for sure. Yeah, I'm, I needed to adjust my top three because um, I think uh, let's just do it that way. Peter Jason's mouth trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. It's just out of nowhere. Apparently, his idea. Um, that scene where Susan comes out from behind the door just freaked me out um and then i substituted because w- w- i had alice alice cooper and in, in general is a, is a sort of creepy individual just staying with you but I, I think i'll just go with the uh sort of imagery of catherine sinking in the mirror it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's haunting so <laughs> um bottom threes iran did you want to go first um sure bottom three um blount and jameson their their relationship to me, it's uh, it's it's weak. It's unneeded. Uh, honestly, I think it's it's just there so that uh, there's a little bit by way of stakes. Whenever uh, Lisa Blount uh, jumps into the uh, mirror at the at the end, um, so honestly, I've, I I take away the jump scare at the end. Uh, I don't think you need it. I don't think you need the relationship. I don't think you need. Uh, Jameson being a stalker in there, it's <laughs> unneeded. Um, also, one thing I found weird with there's so much going on in, say, the first hour of the film, and most of that is that first Friday night because the researchers are taking over the church for the weekend. And most of that time, um, most of the time within the film is Friday night. Well, Saturday, whenever the sun comes up Saturday, Dennis Dunn's in the closet. Donald Pleasance is reading the Bible behind a huge locker or something. And the other heroes are stuck in a room, uh, barricaded in. And nothing really happens except Jameson jumps out the window and then jumps back in. And then suddenly it's night again. So there's a bit of a progression of that second day, that Saturday that is sort of unclear and sort of comes off a little awkwardly to me. Uh, so that's uh, number two. Oh, and so 
How is it Kelly got tagged to be the host? She ran into something which gave her a bruise. And I just think that's sort of poorly developed. It's sort of a, a weak little incidental um, knock on the arm. And then she is uh, targeted to be the host for the son of Satan. And it's just sort of a bizarre, uh, poorly developed uh, bit of business in my mind. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's very it's very. I didn't even pay attention to it. Now that you mentioned, it, it's like yeah, it totally makes sense. Like just how many they were supposed to be there for a weekend, and just things like one day just passed when Dennis Dunn was in the closet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just okay. But you know, I don't know. I was in the moment. Uh, Kevin, bottom three. Um, let's say the uh, the homeless characters. I think probably. A one week part of it because there's no real explanation as to what they're doing or why they're there or like what's actually drawing them to this place you know i know there's like a lot of cutaway shots where you see kind of like like a um a um, um a um eclipse forming in the sky almost but there's no actual explanation for you know why the homeless are there or why they try to barricade them into the into the uh, to the uh the church and then um the second thing would be, uh, I think, uh, just uh, weak, weak characterizations, pretty much for a lot of the characters. I mean, you get the, the, the basic sense of a lot of the characters, which, but like, you no, know, for a horror film, you know, that's really the most you probably need. But I feel like in some cases, like what Randy had mentioned with the, uh, the, uh, the uh, um, um, relationship between the two characters, you know, they could have been a lot more invested with it within that to at least make it feel more natural. I, I guess would be the right word. Yep. Um, right. Okay. Um, yeah. One thing on on the homeless people, I, I just noticed. Um, I, I kind of dug it that you know. Okay, I don't want to push back on your bottom threes, but I was just thinking, I kind of like the fact that they don't explain anything apart from what they what they explain as in the sort of matter anti I they don't explain what. Okay, well, there's an eclipse happening. You kind of just. You can tease out that there's some something's coming on, but um, it actually makes it more creepy to me. Like when you see this, um, I think I can't remember if it's Victor Wong who just like turns around and he sees this sort of homeless woman just waving at some at something in the sky, and it's just okay. And then she had, she has maggots in a cup. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, but you know, I like anyway. Donald Pleasant's reaction to her. Yeah, it was, just- uh, decidedly. You know, very judgmental and non-Christian. As soon as he gets inside the church, he's got this look of disgust. It's just like, where can I, where can I wash my hands? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because no, she was, he was, like, it was bad enough that she tried to kiss his hand. He was like, no, please don't. And he sees, <laughs> she just has a couple of maggots. I'm like, oh no, I don't where his mouth has been. <laughs> um, speaking of my first bottom three, <clears throat> this is Kaka. Kaka <laughs> <laughs> would have been fine if he just said this is Kaka and then he just there's a pause and he says Kaka I'm just why um uh, so uh, okay well this this could be ex equo with the homosexual panic line which I don't understand why this is there. <laughs> Um, so another another one is um, how they dispose both of the women, so Lisa and Susan, out the window in like the span of thirty seconds. Just like there was such a such a great sort of threat to them, and they're just like out the window. You go bye. <laughs> okay, fine. Time to move on. <laughs> to move on. <laughs> to move on. That's how they just just take care of them. 
But the absolute pinnacle for me is the pillow talk between Brad and Catherine on all accounts. Like when he says he's a certified sexist out and proud, and he's just, and they, he promises, and they, they, they want to go for a coffee and they bang and then just they talk about these sort of gender reversals to have and have not. And it's just so poorly acted. It's just so painful to look at. It just hurts me right in my meow meow. It's just horrible. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's it. So, Prince of Darkness uh, can be rented or purchased from the usual vendors. It can be streamed, I think, in the US on Peacock of all places. I don't know, Kevin, have you streamed it on Peacock? No, we have a 4K. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> I, I, I spent the money on it. <laughs> there you go. So, most importantly, it's available physically in beautiful new restoration in the US. I think it's a screen factory, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, in the UK, it's a studio canal. Um, they're both on 4K and Blu-ray, so you should totally get it because it's worth your time. I hope two and a half hours of, I think two, two hours of our discussion, I think you should, should have convinced you that this is a film you should totally watch. Um, so I think that that's it for this episode of the Uncle James Podcast. So where can we find you all on social media? Where can we find your stuff? Randy, our esteemed guest, how about you go first? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7. You can find me on Twitter uh, under Randy Burroughs. And you can find some of my recent writing on Clapper. Fabulous. Kevin? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, CKKevin24, uh, Letterboxd at CKKevin. And you can read some of my writing on, uh, on uh, Clapper. Awesome. And you can find me I talk about film on Twitter as, as Jakub Flash on Letterboxd. You can find my stuff on Clapper and on flashonfilm.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram. Well, Instagram is kind of, I don't know, orphaned for a while because I don't know how to use it properly and make the best of it. But anyway, it's at, at Uncut Gems Pod on both uh, social media. So make sure to follow, like, retweet our stuff. Uh, rate and review on Apple Podchaser if you can. Helps us a lot. Five-star reviews only. If I see anything less, I'm going to find you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can also send us an email at uncutgemspod at gmail.com. And then, you know, one day I might actually get you on the show because I think this is how our relationship with, with Randy started. You know, he listened and he uh, got in touch. And now, you know, it's it, we're, we're here. We're, we're, you know, we're making we're making friends in here. So, <laughs> so it's great. Um, anyway, if you want to sound off about Prince of Darkness or any other film we've covered, just send us an email at uncutgemspod at gmail.com. Uh, so also you can su- support the show over at coffee.com slash uncut gems pod buying us a coffee um, for like three dollars or something like this or um, you can also support us by subscribing to our paid clapper patreon over at patreon.com slash clapper ltd where for two ba- bucks a month you will get access to at least two uh, extra podcasts monthly uh, i think one classic clapper cast and one whatever <laughs> else um, so you know tune in uh, subscribe and then enjoy our content because you know we love talking about films and then hope we, we you love listening up to, to us um, talk about these films anyway so be sure to tune in next week as we will be kind of staying with Carpenter's spirit but not quite because to observe Halloween we will be doing a double bill of Rob Zombie's Halloween and Halloween too so look out for that and I, I think Jack's going to be here so if we're doing two films and Jack's on board it's going to be five hours So (laughs) I can't promise anything less than this. Look out for that. But for now, I hope you have a fabulous day and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.